0: Welcome to SongCraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. SongCraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com.
1: You're listening to Mick Jagger's version of Use Me, originally made a hit by the song's writer and today's guest on SongCraft, Bill Withers. Pop and R&B legend Bill Withers released nine albums between 1971 and 1985 that included such classic songs as... Lean On Me, Ain't No Sunshine, Grandma's Hands, Use Me, Lovely Day, and Just The Two Of Us. Though he stepped away from the limelight in the mid-1980s, his songs have become classics that have withstood the test of time and been covered by iconic artists including Aretha Franklin, Michael Jackson, Gladys Knight, Garth Brooks, Willie Nelson, Paul McCartney, Ike and Tina Turner, Smokey Robinson, Al Green, The Staple Singers, Diana Ross, Neil Diamond, Sting, Linda Ronstadt, Roberta Flack, Buddy Guy, Barbara Streisand, and George Benson. Additionally, his music has been sampled by Jay-Z, Dr. Dre, LL Cool J, Tupac Shakur, R. Kelly, and Kanye West. Withers was in the inaugural class of the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame and is a nine-time Grammy nominee. He won three Grammy Awards for Best R&B Song for Ain't No Sunshine in 1971, Just the Two of Us in 1981, and the Club Nouveau cover of Lean on Me in 1987. He was inducted to the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015.
0: You know, people are always asking kind of our impressions of these interviews and these conversations. And I have to say, Bill Withers was a dream interview for us. It was something we really wanted to do. And it was unique even before it started.
1: I actually was at an event uh, earlier this year where I wound up sitting across the table from a music journalist and we got to talking about what's the most difficult interview you've ever done. And he said, uh, Bill Withers. And um, so... I said, well, what about it was so hard? And he said, you know, Bill is just not interested at all in setting the interviewer at ease. Uh, and, you know, he's not going to give you what he thinks maybe you want uh, because he just kind of is who he is. And it was just it was a tough it was a very difficult interview for him.
0: I've, I've heard stories like that, too. And after reading the Rolling Stone interview and watching that still Bill documentary, you definitely get a sense that that's Bill's personality. Um, and with with that, I think even going into the interview, I was a little nervous this time.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I'm, I was more nervous about this interview than any interview we've done. Uh, probably because I care uh, <laughs> a lot because I'm a, I'm a huge Bill Withers fan, you yeah. know. And I guess there are certain people that I might have the opportunity to interview at some point where I think, oh, what if, what if they don't like me, or <laughs> what if they don't respond well and. It's easier to kind of shrug that off if it's not somebody that's already kind of one of your heroes. Well,
0: and not not only is Bill kind of a hero type because his music is awesome, but he's just cool. Like you look at him on screen and you're like, that right. dude's cool. I want that dude to like me. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so I think that, that moment when the phone rang and uh, we picked it up and heard, this is Bill Withers. Right. I was like... <gasps> Yeah, <laughs> okay, and go. the phone
1: rang. By the way, precisely at the scheduled time exactly. on the second, because my other fear was, man, he's just gonna, he's, he's not gonna, gonna not, he's not yeah. gonna
0: call us. And once we got into the interview, I, I think as people will hear that perception of Bill as somebody that doesn't care about putting you at ease. I mean, that's well earned. It's a well earned reputation. Yeah,
1: totally. Or, or you know, he's just not interested in analyzing uh, the magic of what made those songs. You right. know, he's very. Pragmatic about the writing process, you know, and, and, you know, there's something that's kind of refreshing about that because he didn't say this in our interview, uh, but I've seen interviews with Bill where he said, um, most stories about how songs are written are made up after the fact. And he said, because that's for the artist to go and have something to tell a DJ and something to talk about. And a lot of times there's not really like a grandiose story. Um, Unfortunately, that analysis uh, completely obliterates the whole point of our, of our show. (laughs) Uh, But it is refreshing for a guy who has largely removed himself from the music business. He doesn't need to, put himself across or promote himself or, or convince DJs that they need to play his records or whatever. So he doesn't have that kind of show business motivation about him. So it's, you know, he just sort of calls it like he sees it and there's something that's pretty refreshing about that from an entertainer. Yeah. Well, and
0: I think it's consistent with the kind of music he made, too. I mean, that's really kind of Spartan music. The The production is sparse. There's not, like, a ton of extra stuff going on. You, don't, you listen to Bill Withers' stuff, the most you'll hear vocally is usually, like, a doubled vocal. You're not going to hear harmonies, stacked stuff. It sounds like a live band playing, which is why, by the way, if you go and watch any YouTube clips of Bill Withers playing in the 70s, it sounds just like the record. Yeah. Because yeah. it's basically five guys in a room playing music. And it just seems like this has been who he's been the whole time. He didn't have any time for, you know, extras and frills. And I, I think you definitely get that conversationally.
1: Yeah. He was writing about what he was thinking about and he was writing about what he was feeling and he wasn't editing himself. He wasn't saying, well, we need to put a bridge here or right. this chorus needs to fit uh, this structure. or I need to follow this rule or that rule because that's how songs are written. He was just putting on the page and on the tape, what was kind of spilling out of him. And, you know, I think that, it's hard for me to believe that he is as detached uh, as as he might like people to believe. Mm. It's hard for me to believe that he doesn't really care because um, listening to his songs, he's obviously a very deep and a very sensitive right. soul. Um, you know, he's probably just tired of answering the same questions from a bunch of dorks like us. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so I think that kind of... Knowing that and and going into this interview like we did, it was it was just we were kind of able to just have fun with it, you yeah. know, to just kinda laugh because he he is who he is. He's not gonna try to be what we want him to be or what someone else wants him to be. He's just you know, I mean, his first album's called Just As I Am.
0: Yeah. You know. It, and the documentary's called Still Bill. Right. You yeah.
1: Know? Yeah. He's consistent. Yeah.
0: How much would you like to see Bill Withers run for office? <laughs> <laughs> see him in a debate yeah in a town hall meeting it
1: was it was like the bluntness of donald trump without the ridiculousness
0: yeah totally yeah so bill withers for president yeah (laughs) withers 16 i'm on board
1: i like it i like it uh well with that let's hear our interview with bill withers sounds good bill welcome to songcraft
2: yeah my pleasure bud
1: now your last studio album watching you watching me was released 30 years ago in 1985 And you very successfully slipped off the radar and avoided the spotlight for many years uh, of your own choosing. Um, But within the last decade, you've been inducted to the Songwriters Hall of Fame. You've received the ASCAP Rhythm and Soul Heritage Award. You've had a documentary made about you and and you just got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame earlier this year. Um, How do you feel about the renewed attention that's been focused on your music in recent years?
2: Well, it's flattering. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. You know, it has nothing to do with anything I did recently. So I just have to accept it gracefully, I guess.
1: Right. Do you have any thoughts uh, of why you think that renewed attention has has come about in, in recent years?
2: No, that's not for me to say. You know, uh, I, I don't really care. I just take it as it comes. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. 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 Well, and you you strike me as a naturally musical person, so I I imagine that music has continued to be a part of your life, but the music business is something that you've kind of largely removed yourself from. When you did kind of walk away from it, did you intend to pull yourself from the business permanently, or did you kind of just intend to just take a break for a while?
2: Well, I didn't walk away from anything. I was just being me, you know?
0: Right, because nobody forced you out, obviously, everybody still wanted to hear the music, but after 85, when you decided, eh, I'm not going to make that next record, um, did you think you'd come back and make another one later down the line, maybe 10 years, or were you kind of like, ah, I'm over this?
2: Uh, nobody was clamoring for me to make any more music, hmm. you know. Uh, my success came, the biggest successes I had were after I had sort of forgotten about it. Huh. Interesting You just said it earlier You know uh, In the last 10 years I've gotten more attention Than I got in the first 10
1: Wow <laughs> Right Right <laughs> It's interesting Yeah It's like you always get the thing You're not looking for
2: Well for me It was you know The songs Did their own
0: work Right Right Well it's true And those are those are songs That have staying power And so they They
1: can find new life
2: Yeah They didn't blast out of the box But they kind of hung
1: around Yeah know? Yeah, yeah. Well, a few years back, you appeared at the Grammy Museum. Uh, I was there that night and and had the chance to hear your daughter, uh, Corey, perform some of your classic songs. And she is a a fantastic singer. and, And I know that she's a songwriter as well. As someone who has sort of Famously been wary of the music business, and as a father who is just naturally going to be protective, uh, what are your your fears for her as she kind of navigates the the waters of the music industry?
2: I don't really have any. She just turned thirty six years old, so she makes her own decisions. You know? <laughs> right,
1: take care of herself. It's not
2: like some little kid, you know.
1: Yeah, but but you know, as a father, as as a dad, I mean, there's always that that thing of you know someone's always going to be your little boy or or your little girl even if they're 55 years old you know do you worry about what the the business might do to her creativity or 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 is that something that you that you think about
2: no that's something for her to figure out for herself yeah because I can't follow around all the time so right you know it's been a long time since she lived in my house you know (laughs) right
1: right sure Well, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, uh, those of us who are fans get the opportunity to hear some some new Bill Withers songs. Um, You wrote a song called I Am My Father's Son, which Johnny Mathis performed at a 2013 event honoring Bill Russell. And um, I think of Raul Midan, who uh, released Mi Amigo Cubano last year, which is a song that we saw the two of you collaborating on in the in the documentary still bill um but i want to actually ask you about an interesting collaboration with jimmy buffett who recorded two of your songs on his 2004 album license to chill um one of them was simply complicated which you you wrote with jimmy and the other was playing the loser again which you wrote by yourself and, and on which you sing a verse don't make me dream again it's a sin
3: to make love to me And then just disappear And leave me waiting here Playing the loser again Don't give
1: me hope um, As far as I know, that's the last Bill Withers vocal performance that's been commercially released and what strikes me about it is it's it really is a country song um, and country music isn't necessarily something that people associate with Bill Withers but I, I'm curious was country music an influence on you when you were growing up in West Virginia
2: you just answered your own question I grew up in West Virginia that's all they play is country music
4: <laughs> right. Right.
2: right no it was just something that was in the air and Jimmy called me and uh, said he was going to make a country album with Alan Jackson and a bunch of people. Right. So I said, "Well, what'd you call me for?" He says, "Well, you're about as country as anybody." So.
1: <laughs> right.
2: That just sort of happened that way.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things to me that's that's really interesting is I think there's this false dichotomy in in the music industry that you know country music is white music R&B is black music and and things tend to get categorized um particularly for folks of your generation I feel like the radio wasn't so formatted so segregated you know it's sort of like everybody particularly people living in the country were all hearing um, different types of music coming over the airwaves. I mean, I, I would imagine that that you had access to hearing all kinds of things, maybe even in a weird way more so than, than people have today.
2: Well, you know, uh, country music is largely white music and R&B <laughs> is largely black music. Right. Uh, as is rock and roll was born out of uh, white people becoming interested in black music. Yeah. Right. And so you got Pat Boone's Tutti Frutti and <laughs> Elvis Presley's, you know... Uh,
0: That's all right, Mama. Whatever, you yeah. know. Yeah, and then you have Ray Charles doing the Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music album.
2: Right. So people are transient yeah. back and forth at times. I think Darius Rucker and Charlie Pride and people like that, you yeah. know. yeah. But when you're talking about generally... Generally, country music is white people's music, and R&B is black people's music, yeah.
0: generally. And, and even even down to the, the implements of the music. I mean, you know, w- watching some, some clips of what you were doing in the 70s, and it's it probably shouldn't be striking, but it is striking to see you sitting there with an acoustic guitar um, playing these songs that are so soulful when you, you didn't see you know african-americans playing acoustic guitar you know kind of soul music at that time but um... it seems like we've found kind of a convergence in your music that thing that you're expressing kinda you were able to break some of that down
2: well i had an acoustic guitar because it didn't cost as much as an electric guitar I had an electric guitar, and I'd have probably played that, you know
0: <laughs> yeah, you know we, we talked a bit about your uh, your upbringing in West Virginia, and growing up in that small town in the South, I would imagine also that church music was a strong presence there. Um, can you tell us in what ways you were shaped by gospel sounds growing up?
2: Well, I have to tell you a funny story about people being shaped by music. Uh, an old friend of mine, Richard T., great piano player, and Richard T. was as gospel as you can get. And I asked him, you know, where he grew up. He said he grew up Catholic in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, wherever you have churches, people are going to. Uh, right. uh, but, uh, uh, you know, if you listen to a lot of the blues, a lot of those songs were taken from gospel music. Yeah. Yeah. Ray Charles, I Got a Woman. Sure. A very famous blues song, My Babe, you know. Yep. You know, so uh, there's always been leakage back and forth between genres and cultures and stuff. That's just how it is.
0: It seems like we try to format things on radio and categorize things so we can put them in the right category on iTunes, but the music itself tends to, like you say, that leakage. It almost uh, rejects the categorization we try to put on it.
2: Yeah, all my life, wherever I've lived in the South or whatever there were always some white people that were enamored with black culture so they hung out and then uh then you have like black people that act traditionally you know white right yeah so uh you know people are are adventurous uh, you got some guy from montana that's going to go live in malaysia <laughs> right uh yeah. it's the way the world is people become interested in each other
1: yeah Yeah. you know a lot of people that we talk to on this show um, people who become songwriters or performers a lot of them say, you know, they knew from a very early age that that's exactly what they were going to do. And that was their, their goal, you know, from the time they were little kids. But your story is different. And, and I understand that, you know, you did not leave West Virginia to, to seek your, your fame and fortune in the music world. Um, tell us a little bit about your adult life prior to getting into music.
2: Well, I think people uh, people avail themselves of whatever opportunity. They have. I didn't have those kind of choices, you know. There was no path to name me the long list of black people that left West Virginia and <laughs> had success in the music business. <laughs> right, right, right. Nobody immediately comes to mind, right? <laughs> right yeah.
0: not so much. You've, you've stumped me. <laughs>
2: so um, you know, you uh, you take your opportunities as they come. Yeah. When that kind of situation, you know, when I left. The main thing was to make a living some kind of way, mm. right? And uh, help out whoever needed helping, but your first goal was to make a living. Sure. Yeah. And so uh, a lot of people joined the military. That was a, uh, uh, or you could go into coal mines, but who in the hell wants to go down in
1: there? You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you're trying to get out.
2: Yeah. So I think people uh, act on things as they become uh, available. I mean, I would have liked to have done like my kids go to Ivy League colleges and that stuff right. wasn't available.
1: Right, you know? right. So what did you what did you do initially?
2: I joined the Navy. I stayed in there 9 years. Again, it gets back to choices. What are mm. your choices? You know, what's available to you? Right. right. The sad thing is when you don't avail yourself of anything.
0: Right. right.
2: You know.
0: Right, when people have opportunities in front of them and they don't <laughs> seize them.
2: Or they don't know how, you know. Yeah, a lot of things that are logical to some people are elusive to other people.
0: Now, um, knowing a little bit that we know that you kind of found yourself in the aircraft industry, was that was that kind of a natural progression from from the navy? Were you part of the naval aviation?
2: Well, my my naval aircraft participation and my civilian were very different. <laughs> in the navy, I was a, a first class aviation machinist mm-hmm. mate. Mm-hmm. In civilian life, I did stuff like shoot rivets, and, you know, it wasn't very complicated.
1: Right, right. You were almost overqualified. Which
2: was good, because I could focus on whatever else, you know. Yeah, yeah. Didn't eat up too much brain power, you know. (laughs) Right,
0: right. (laughs) I understand that you had uh, kind of a pivotal experience at a club one night in Oakland, California, that uh, I guess you could call a turning point, inspiring you to try your hand at a music career. Could you tell us that story?
2: Oh, you mean about Lou Rawls that's coming in late? Yeah. And the guy said he was paying him two thousand dollars a week.
0: Yeah, and, and you felt like, well, hey, I can make two thousand dollars a week playing music, right?
2: Well that's not what made me do it, but it certainly uh, uh solidified hurt. my urges, you know. No.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, a lot it's more complicated than just you know, one night or one guy sure. or one whatever you
1: know yeah well tell us a little bit about that uh like you say it's more you know it can't be boiled down necessarily to to one moment but tell us about that that shift of of how you went from you know here i am this guy with with his day job and i'm going to decide to focus my intensity on starting a music career
2: well people who can do music are basically born that way Hmm. I mean, you can't acquire musicality at some age, you know. Right. Right. You're born that way, and if you are, it's probably been lurking back there. And finally, you get to a point where, well, if I don't try this now, I'm never going to do it.
4: Mm. Sure.
2: You know, it's it's why some people go skydiving and uh, scuba diving and, uh, you know, run marathons and stuff. Yeah. So whatever you, urges you have are dormant in in you. Right. And some people never get around to it, you know? Yeah. Some people that do get around to it shouldn't bother, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's, you know, people are how they are mm-hmm. and whatever situations. People make choices like that.
0: Right. Well, whenever you started learning how to play and started writing songs, did you... You know, did you set out and say I'm I'm gonna take a certain amount of time each day and play this thing, or did you just fall in love with it? And
2: no, no, no. I never decided I was gonna learn how to play. That's how come I can't play. (laughs) I decided I'm gonna write some songs and I'm gonna use this thing.
4: Yeah.
2: So you know, if what I did is very simple, you know, there. But you have to think of it. Yeah. See, there are people who are virtuosos who can't think up stuff, original. Right. Right. Songs aren't written by virtuosos. No. Songs are written by people who are clever, and being a musician and a songwriter is are two very separate things. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, you eventually, were able to make a demo of of some of your songs and you wound up uh, signing with Sussex Records around 1970 and uh, Booker T. Jones, of course, of of Booker T. and the MGs produced your debut album and, um, you know, some pretty impressive guys playing on that record, Duck Dunn and and Stephen Stills. Um, Am I correct in understanding that you actually had not been playing out in clubs and playing live shows before you made that first record?
2: No, I'd never done that. Wow.
0: (laughs) Wow. <laughs> did did you feel comfortable in the studio with those guys, or did you feel like, man, I'm, I'm yeah, overmatched? Yeah, those guys,
2: I you know, it wasn't like cyborgs or something. You know? <laughs> right. They weren't nine feet tall, right. a bunch of guys, you know. <laughs> right. And they were very nice to me, so.
1: Now, is it true that, that the cover for that first record was actually shot on your lunch break at the factory where you were working at the time? Yes. Wow.
0: That's great. <laughs> I, I love the fact that it wasn't like a team of makeup artists and, uh, you know, the whole deal, but you just
1: took off and took the shot?
2: Well, I didn't have the time, and the worker company didn't have the money. It was a small company.
1: Wow, right. Well, what did your what did your co-workers think of these developments?
2: Uh, as usual, they were yelling out there, giving me a hard time.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
2: then six months later, they were all asking me for a job. <laughs> right,
1: exactly. <laughs> then they were your best friends. <laughs> well, you know, you, you've been very open about the fact that, that you stuttered until you were almost... 30 years old. And, you know, that's obviously a situation, as you know better than I do, that that can contribute to social anxiety. Um, And I'm curious how that sense of anxiety might have come into play once suddenly you go from being the guy who's who's working at the factory to getting up in front of these large groups of people to perform or going on TV to, to sing your songs and talk about yourself.
2: Well, I think you got it backwards. I don't think stuttering contributes to social anxiety. I think social anxiety contributes to stuttering, mm-hmm.
0: but at some point it seems like you you kind of overcame that. You know, you were, you didn't feel anxious in front Booker and once so I
2: dealt with the social anxiety, everything that happened as a result of that mm-hmm. wasn't there anymore. Yeah, or not to that extent. You know, right,
1: right, right. It's interesting how you were able to sort of deal with that prior to being thrown into the limelight. You know, it's funny how life almost works sometimes. Like you were. You had you're almost preparing yourself for a future that you know you didn't know was going to happen or not, and it, and it worked out that way. So that by the time you are the guy on the stage, you've kind of dealt with some of those root issues. I think that's pretty interesting.
2: Well, you know, let's just be honest about it. You don't get in this business by accident, right? <laughs> right. Everybody that in the music business, they did it because they intended to, right? Right. Now, each person goes through his own personal challenges and whatever but uh, if it's something you intended to do you're not shocked when it happens because that's what you were trying to do right
4: right yeah
2: you know what i mean sure sure if you were throwing a rock at the moon and all of a sudden you hit it you know you could be excited about it but you wouldn't be surprised otherwise you wouldn't have been throwing at it in the first place
1: right you know, and I'm, I'm, this might be a weird question, but I'm kind of curious of, you know, like you say, you, you decided you want to be in the music business. It didn't just fall in your lap. You, you went after it. Um, and, and I wonder having been a guy who was in the military for, for nine years, do you think there's a certain, uh, focus and, and discipline to kind of working on your craft and going after a goal that, that the military gave you that, that helped you as you went after, you know, this next part of your life?
2: No. No, because people do the same thing that are 16 years old.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. It, uh, uh, the most elusive thing is time. Right. Mm. Finding the time to do it.
4: Right. Mm. Yeah.
2: So in order to do it, I had to put the military behind me.
4: Mm. Yeah.
2: Which doesn't make it much of a contributing factor. Mm. Right, right. You know, I had to lose that first.
0: Well, once you got going, that first single from your debut album Just As I Am was called Harlem, and that song didn't really become a hit, but the DJs started turning it over and playing the B-side instead, which was Ain't No Sunshine.
3: Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone goes away. And I know, I know, I know,
0: I know, I know, I know, I know. and that song seems to break a lot of conventions. You know, it has no intro. It repeats that I know, I know, I know line over and over. and one of the things that seems to be coming out, you know, as a as a theme here is that you don't really sweat that kind of stuff. But, you know, sometimes people will try that kind of stuff, try to break the rules and it won't work. Do you have any idea why it worked for you?
2: thing to do hmm. I told you there are a lot of people who pursue this that shouldn't it ain't never gonna happen yeah right. and there are a lot of people that should that are stopped by their own apprehensions hmm. yeah so that's just life and the law of averages you know yeah right
0: yeah now if, if I were to ask you you know cuz the concept that virtuosos don't make songs necessarily and um, and that some people are just sort of given whatever it takes to make it in music what would you say your gift is?
2: Probably knowing what not to do. <laughs> All the musicians that I respected, the thing they said more often was knowing what not to play.
0: Hmm. Right. Right. The notes not to play, the beats yeah. to leave out.
2: Yeah. And, you know, when you have a small toolbox, you have to get it done with those few tools that you have. So mm. I have a small toolbox. I'm not a virtuoso. Uh, I don't walk around listening to stuff all the time so you know yeah. I was working out of my toolbox. Hmm. Everybody works out of his own toolbox.
1: Right. right. You know just the thought of of like you say you you were just doing what you were doing, you were using what you had. Um and what strikes me about your music is that there's just such an effortlessness of it. You can, you can hear the way that it flows out of you. You know, that it's not contrived. You're not trying to be somebody that you're not. Um, and, you know, after Ain't No Sunshine became a, a top five pop and R&B hit, uh, then the, the follow-up single Grandma's Hands became another top 20 on the R&B chart.
3: Mm-hmm, grandma's Hands Clapped in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand used to issue out a warning She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast Might fall on a piece of glass Might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hand
1: And that's an interesting song to me in that it's kind of this you know, love song to your grandmother. And most love songs are, are about romantic love. I mean, was there a, was there any sense of, um, on your part of, Hey, I'm going to kind of try and in- intentionally shake up some of the same old, same old R and B love song formula and, and, you know, write about a family member. Um, or was that just, uh, this is just what was kind of flowing out of you. And there wasn't a particular end. Goal no, you? you're
2: just writing a song. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's not science. You don't, you know, it's it's not that analytical. It's just right. something you, you want to do, you know.
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: Or not for me anyway. I right. mean, I, sure. uh, plus I don't think anybody quite, if you really wanted to write a best selling book, write a book, how to write songs. Nobody's ever written one.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think, it, and you make an interesting point is that it's, it, it's as much, catching lightning in a bottle as, as it is, or just having that inspiration strike. If you, could, if you could map it out as, okay, do step one, two, three, then everybody would be doing it.
2: Well, and, you know, you got songwriting classes. I got a call recently about if I wanted to teach one. Yeah. And I thought, like, no, I can't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know. It's a short form.
4: Right.
2: It's not a long enough form to have complicated yeah. instructions. Right, you know, right. It's a gift. you can either do it or you can't.
0: And it's funny because here we are talking about songwriting and asking these questions, and I, I remember watching a, an interview with Tom Petty, and he was asked a question about one of his great songs, you know, and they asked him about his process. How do you do it?" And he he took a long pause and he said, "You know,
1: it's not something that I really want to look in the eye too much."
2: Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
1: yeah. So your, your second album, Still Bill, was released in May of 1972. And, you know, all the original songs that had been on your first album were, were written solo. But there were a couple of uh, collaborations on the second LP, including the fantastic Who Is He and What Is He to You, uh, which he wrote with Stan McKinney.
3: I don't know who he is, but I think that you do. That gum it Who is he and what is a he to
1: you?: What was it like to start creating music kind of in partnership with other people after having done it you by yourself up to that point?
2: I've never met Stan McKinney. Uh, he sent me some lyrics in the mail.
1: huh really?
0: really? and you got the thing and you were like hey these look good I'm gonna write this
2: Uh, one of the secretaries at the record company that had been instructed to throw away all that stuff people were sending me she says this (laughs) you might want to take a look at
1: yeah Yeah. and you've never met him to this day
2: nope
1: wow Wow. (laughs) that's amazing
2: he probably sent me a bunch of
3: other
0: stuff but it you know yeah well probably your your best known hit is is Lean On Me Lean On Me
3: When You're That
0: song went to number one on the pop chart. I mean, just huge hit, multiple times. Tell us how you came up with that memorable piano intro.
2: I bought a piano and uh, started. Uh, I found a fingering and just went up and down.
1: Huh? Had you been a a piano player, or was that kind of a, a new thing? At no, time? I
2: just bought a little whirlits a piano and uh, was fooling around with it.
1: Hmm. Wow
0: there really is a gift involved with you man because i I know a lot of people that have sat down and fooled around with the piano and come up with some pretty forgettable stuff and it's pretty cool (laughs) to to sit down and be like "Eh, here comes lean on me This is going to change the world
2: yeah but you gotta figure this is this is a life for unique people Hmm. yeah true so if not if there's not something unique about you
0: right yeah
2: who cares right? <laughs> right
0: Yeah so that's why We're talking Good to advice. you Right now huh? Yeah
2: yeah So it's a given to, <laughs> yeah. There's a reason Why you wanted to talk Yeah to there's me a lot today. Of people
0: in this Neighborhood we're not Sitting down to talk To right now but.
1: <laughs> Right Right <laughs> Well you know Another of the, the Classic hit songs On that second album Is, is Use Me My friends Feel as imagine that going from being the the nine to five guy with the day job to being a a rock star basically within the span of a couple of years probably garnered plenty of attention from plenty of people who were were interested in using you was that uh was that an autobiographical song
2: No, that song was written probably in a factory somewhere.
1: Oh, so it was written before you uh, found your success.
2: Yeah. You know what? Whenever anybody asks me, you know, what were you thinking when you I was thinking that. Whatever's written, that's what I was thinking.
4: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: I haven't mastered the art of thinking about one thing and writing about another one. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: interesting.
0: Well, many of your songs off of those first couple records—I mean, they've they've been recorded by iconic artists. I mean, people like Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Paul McCartney, Gladys Knight, Willie Nelson, Sting, Mick Jagger, Michael Jackson. What's it like for you to hear some real heavy hitters interpret your songs?
2: I don't know. I've never had it any other way. (laughs) It's like somebody says, "What's it like to be you?" I don't know. (laughs) It's my life.
1: Uh,
0: all right, check off that question.
2: No, that's a it's, a it's a very common question. Nobody yeah. ever gives an honest answer.
1: There, there's got to be a degree though to which you hear something that you wrote coming out of Aretha Franklin's mouth, or out of Paul McCartney's mouth or Mick Jagger's mouth. you know these iconic voices that you've heard sing all these millions of songs. I mean there's got to be something a little uh a little trippy about that.
2: No, I don't have that gene, you know.
0: No? Have you ever heard a version of one of your songs that you liked better than your own?
2: I wouldn't tell you if I, (laughs) you know, why would I tell you that?
0: Uh, Because you like us.
2: (laughs) You know, why would I answer a question
0: like that? (laughs) It's it's a lose-lose question. Uh, Fair enough. Fair enough. I gotta ask it, though.
1: Well, your your third album was the Live at Carnegie Hall LP, which you know included some of the live versions of of some cuts from your first two records, but also some some new songs uh, such as Let Us Love and Friend of Mine, things that hadn't been released previously. Um, we've kind of touched on this, but you know the the music industry is is all about categorization, and and one of those archetypes that the industry embraced for. What an R&B performer is is the, you know the the flashy stage shows the the dancers the swagger you know but um, you know like Paul mentioned earlier here you are you're this guy sitting on a stool strumming an acoustic guitar undeniably soulful but there's also kind of like a, a folk element there as well it's its own unique thing it's not it doesn't fit into to some preconceived category um, did you ever feel pressured to to be something that was not you in order to to fit into someone else's concept of you know what an r&b performer for instance is is supposed to be
2: no man al jolson probably (laughs) probably thought he had some resemblance to some black person (laughs) somewhere right uh you know i've been used to people you know doing imitations of accents, uh thinking they're singing the blues and mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's just been part of the landscape, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Some of those English guys that they're not sounding like blues singers <laughs> 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 or, <laughs> or dancing their ass off. You know? right. <laughs> it looks like, to me it looks like some guy having a seizure <laughs> To him and his constituency, he's dancing. That's fair. So I haven't, I have yet in my life, have the people in general make an honest assessment of my intellect, my whatever. So I don't, I don't even process that. You know, yeah, just whatever people think black people are. You know, that's their thoughts. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the way I really am.
1: Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, your your final LP for the the Sussex label, Adjustments, came out in in 1974, and not long after that, uh, the Sussex label went bankrupt. Um, CBS bought those masters, and and you wound up as a Columbia artist. So, you went from this small label where you were the the biggest act on the label to this much more kind of corporate uh, environment. What were some of the changes that surprised you about? that new label environment when you first got there?
2: The biggest change was I went from somewhere where they left me alone and let me make music to where they had a whole bunch of people with, I don't know what the qualifications were to be that, (laughs) trying to tell you what to do. Right. Yeah. Some guy that grew up in Scarsdale all of a sudden becomes an expert on black guys from West Virginia. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what
0: I mean? Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's a connection to this to this next question in that your your first Columbia album, Making Music, it had 10 songs, and half of those songs you co-wrote with others, and that was the first time that the majority of the songs weren't written by you solo was it was this you know the demands now of kind of being a celebrity and on your time or was this some of that whole committee thing saying hey bill i think you should write with this guy or let's let's bring this guy in how did that come about
2: i don't know i don't remember that stuff
0: huh. hmm.
2: you know you're talking 1975 right <laughs> how many people born in 1938 have a very clear memory of stuff that happened in 19 19- Seventy-five. No, that's right, a good point. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So it's like, it's like uh, I don't remember every minute of every day of everything. Right. Uh, a lot of things you remember on a need-to-know basis. Uh,
0: <laughs> right, but, right. Right. You yeah. know, the the, the mind kind of protects you that way, I guess.
2: Yeah. Well, you know. Plus, at this time, who cares? You know what I mean? <laughs> it is what it is.
0: Right. Right, it happening. It's
2: out there, you know, it's been out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't
2: care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right.
1: You, are, you are a man who is comfortable in his own skin. Well, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. You know, the the first single off that, that first Columbia record was uh, Make Love to Your Mind, which was a top 10 R&B hit, and that was followed by I Wish You Well, which was, was another uh, uh, R&B charter. Um, In my opinion, one of the best songs on that record and and one of my favorites um, is Hello Like Before. Hello like before
3: I'd never come here if I'd known that you were here I must admit though that it's nice to see you, dear
1: you look like you've been doing well. Columbia released that as a single, but it did not chart on the R&B or the pop rankings and and I think that was the very first time that a Bill Withers single had been released that did not appear on any Billboard chart. Do you recall if if during that time that raised any concerns for you? Did that cause you to worry?
2: <laughs> no. No. <laughs> No, I told you, I don't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you it know, was then, you know, and yeah. a lot of people have re-recorded that song,
1: so... Yeah,
2: yeah. Somebody heard it, you know. Yeah,
1: it got out there.
2: Yeah, and it's... It's,
1: uh, it's a great song.
2: Yeah, it's a classy song. It's gotten its share of attention.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just finding that, you know, and I think that... W- you, you talk about, you almost don't even know where this stuff comes from. It just, you have it or you don't, you're born with it or, or, or you're not, you know, but the ability to just have those interesting turns of, of phrase, uh, kind of flow out of you. I mean, is the, the sort of thing that, uh, like you say, if you could bottle it, everybody wants to know, man, how do you do that? Um, and it is impressive just to see, it's almost like the willingness to, to drop any kind of filter and say, Hey, there's a new way to say something. But I'm gonna just say it this way because that's how I feel it, and and it connects with people. It's it's to me songs like that are just like the kind that make you go, wow, that's just incredible.
0: Well, thank you. Well, your second Columbia album, Naked and Warm, was released in 1976, and that one didn't spawn any, any major hits. But the follow up record, Menagerie, had Lovely Day, which of course was a top ten R and B, top forty pop hit.
3: Then I look at
0: breezy and up-tempo than some of your earlier work and there were even some disco influences there in songs like Get On Down and Lovely Night for Dancing which was a single Um, was disco something that you were kind of getting into and you wanted to explore that side of your personality or was that you know everybody needs a disco hit at the time the label was sort of pushing for that or probably
2: not I was probably just you know trying to get along you know
0: yeah, yeah.
2: that whole period was kind of up and down for me and uh, you know so I don't know I was just trying to do whatever
4: you yeah
1: yeah you know one of the albums in your catalog that in my opinion doesn't get as as much attention as maybe it should nowadays is about love from 1978 and what i find interesting about that is that all but one of the songs were collaborations with paul smith the the jazz pianist known for you know his work accompanying ella fitzgerald um but that was really the first time that you'd like teamed up with someone else to write multiple songs for one record. Um, and I'm curious to, to hear about your working relationship with, with Paul and, and, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of how you guys kind of work together and, and what that experience was was like for you to kind of approach it with a teammate, so to speak.
2: I don't really know Paul that well. I don't think I've had, talked to him much since. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at that time, I was just trying to, I was just, I don't know, I was towards the end, I was just trying to be yeah. So I, I don't have any specific memories of that, you know.
1: Do you recall how the, the two of you wound up working together?
2: I think I met him up in San Jose where he lived. Yeah. And he had played with Ike Turner and people like that. Sure. You know? yeah. So I never really got in this close relationship with Paul.
1: Hmm. Do you recall if you got together like in a studio or in a room and just kind of intentionally wrote a bunch of songs for the album? Or, or how did that, what did that collaboration look like? <laughs>
2: Shit, I don't know. you talking. <laughs> Again, yeah, you talk way back there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not this great, memorable experience that you know. Right, right. Changed my. I was just doing, you know, right. doing whatever, you know.
1: Sure, yeah. Not not as epic as I might like to imagine. <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: you know it's funny actually your memories are probably more glamorous to us than they are to you (laughs) (laughs) There's all this beautiful pixie dust on your memories (laughs) uh but you know the one song on that record that you wrote solo was memories are that way speaking of memories and i've heard you say that it's one of your favorites of your own catalog what is special about that song for you
2: i don't know oh you know it's just as a I like it as opposed to not liking it, you know. That's about as close as it gets with
1: me. Were there songs that made it onto some of your records that you did not like?
2: Oh, of course. I get up every day and I I put on shoes that I can't stand. (laughs) Uh, I eat something for breakfast that I hate. Uh, You know, I I, I go down and and drive this car. That I bought because I didn't like it. You
0: know. <laughs> and you get on the phone for an hour with two guys that you can't stand. Yeah, me <laughs> too. <So. laughs> well,
1: another collaboration that, that proved quite fruitful for you was uh, when you got together with William Salter and Ralph McDonald, who were the guys who had written Where's the Love for Roberta Flack and, and Donnie Hathaway. And you worked with them to to come up with Just the Two of Us, which became a a top five R&B and and pop hit in 1981. Um, But you won't find that song on a Bill Withers album because it was actually on the Grover Washington album on on which you sang the vocals. Um, How did that come about? Uh,
2: They sent me a tape of this song. And I said, you know, this could be a song, but these words ain't doing it for me Mm -hmm. so uh if i can rewrite these words then you know let's see what we can do yeah yeah so the track was already there and uh i just went in and did it you know there wasn't this long sit down head session with anybody i just did what i wanted to do
1: a dry spell from 1981 until about 1984 when you were not on the charts and you were not releasing new music. Um, and when you did return to the charts in 1984, you know, it was as a, a vocalist on Ralph McDonald's, uh, in the name of love, which is another song that you wrote with, with Ralph and William Salter. Um, that song was nominated for, for best male R and B vocal performance at the Grammys. But again, it was not something that you released as part of your own artist deal with Columbia. Um, what was kind of going on behind the scenes during the early 80s that was keeping you from releasing your own stuff?
2: I couldn't get in the studio. I couldn't get past Mickey Eichner.
1: Hmm. You're A&R, A&R guy at Columbia. A&R.
2: He thought I should record stuff like In the Ghetto. Wonder why he thought that. Wow, right. So, uh, you know what I mean. So yeah. that was that was just sort of a dead period for me, uh, you know. Yeah. know. So... Uh, there's a story I don't know how true it is that they were getting ready to drop me from Columbia, and in a meeting, when my name came up, somebody says, "Well, you better look at the charts. He's got like a number two record." <laughs> just two of
1: right, so let's not drop the hit guy. That's yeah. how
2: smart everything was. Over there. <laughs> that was not a good. That was not a good experience.
1: Yeah. Me. Wow.
2: And probably I wasn't for them either. We should never have. You know. Mm. No.
1: Not the right fit. No.
0: Um, well you were you were very hands on with your own music career, you know, choosing to handle a lot of business yourself rather than use a manager. Um, do you feel like having to deal with some of the really unsavory aspects of the music industry, did that ever affect you when it came time to be creative? You know, did it ever leak into that kind of in a negative way?
2: Well, everything leaks into everything. Yeah. And this is this is the only music business that was. Hmm. So it's not like there was another one where I had another choice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just trying to get by, you know? Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever think, man, I need to pawn some of this off on somebody else to deal with some of this crap?
2: Nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you'd
1: have to trust somebody. I
2: tried again. a couple of times, but, you know, this, uh, you know, No
1: yeah no. yeah you had your own vision your own thoughts you wanted from to-
2: the generation I came from, I never wanted to be anybody's boy,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah nice. interesting
2: so you can read up and add that up yourself you
1: know? <laughs> yeah yeah well, your final Columbia album watching you watching me came out in 1985 uh featured the top 40 r&b and adult contemporary hit oh yeah which he wrote with Larry Carlton and David Foster um and after that it was it was over and that's when basically we see the end of the the Bill Withers recording era um what was this or, or was there a a straw that broke the camel's back in terms that made you say I've had enough of this
2: Yeah, there were a lot of straws, and uh, I've tried to put that, you know, in uh, in the same memory bank that I keep my last (laughs) colonoscopy. You know. Fair enough,
4: fair enough. I don't take that out and
2: look at it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes a non-answer is better than an answer. I I like that. Um, Well, not long after your last album was released in 1985, Club Nouveau had a number one hit with Lean on Me, and that got you your third Grammy win. And then in the late 90s, Will Smith reworked Just the Two of Us, and that was a top 20 pop and R&B hit. Of course, your songs can be heard in movies and commercials, and it, it keeps them alive for new generations. So in other words, everybody knows who Bill Withers is. Are you able to lead a regular life after kind of choosing to avoid the spotlight, or do you still get stopped on the street all the time by fans?
2: No, a lot of people know my music. Uh, a few people know my name. Nobody knows what I look like.
0: Mm-hmm. And if, if, you, if that sort of notoriety and fame part of it, if that all went away and all that was left was the music, would you feel like relief, or would there be any sense of loss at having lost some of that kind of affirmation?
2: I don't know. Why would I want to put myself through an exercise like that? It is the way it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what if Ray Charles married Mary Poppins or <laughs> or Willie Mays had married Jacqueline Onassis? Would the world be the same? You know,
1: I don't care. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, music seems to be very much something that, that you do, something that flows out of you, uh, but not something that you in any way wish to be the soul thing that defines your identity as a person. Um, And so 50 years from now, who would you like people to say Bill Withers was?
2: Mm, I kind of already know because it's not like I've been doing it every day. So my obituary is pretty much written, you know. You know, it's not like I played somewhere last Thursday. Right. So a lot of people think I'm dead anyway.
1: (laughs) the rumors of your death have been greatly exaggerated yeah so but in terms of of your your legacy i mean not so much necessarily what you think it will be but what you would want it to be
2: i don't care hmm. i won't be here you know yeah so what do i care yeah you know it's not like somebody's going to send me a telegram wherever i am <laughs> <laughs> you know, wherever you go, and then I'll know about it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You know what I
1: mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So whether they say uh, Bill Withers, uh, legendary songwriter, amazing vocalist, good dude, or, uh, you know, whatever, it, d- it doesn't make any difference to you. Somebody
2: will say some of everything. Yeah. yeah. That's what people do. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've read some pretty interesting stuff on myself. <laughs> And I think, like, yeah, you know, well, they made that up, you know. <laughs> right, right. There was a guy that worked in Miami for years. He called himself Big Papa E. He claims he played in my band, and he pulled a gun
4: on me. And uh, I've never seen that clown in my life. <laughs> <laughs> he died. Right. So uh,
2: <laughs> you know, which broke me up, you know. <laughs> but. Uh, no, he claims. He claims he played on the Carnegie Hall album. And, right. Wow. You know, and evidently he made a living in Miami playing. Around. Big Papa E was
4: his wow. name. Wow.
2: <laughs> so he was, uh, and I've never seen him. Wow. And there's nothing to document that he was ever anywhere near me.
1: Right. That's great, <laughs> so there's no no shortage of space for legends and mythology to no, have grown up around uh, no. Bill so,
2: you know so i don't i don't I don't get into that stuff you know I don't care yeah
0: when in some ways, it seems like being a guy who who hasn't cared has really benefited what you've done artistically and and kind of being able to keep your head together in a crazy business that you've been able to you know give us the music that you that you gave to the world um, with lack of convention and not, not worrying about what people wanted you to follow. So, um, you know, we, we can appreciate that, that part of Bill Withers.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. And it's, uh, let's face it, you know, this is not a logical choice for most people to decide that's what they're going to do. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, the odds are ridiculous. Uh, the rules are rewritten all the time it's you know it's an odd thing you know
1: yeah yeah well we thank you so much for uh, a lot of great music that that we love and we thank you for your time today and, and for joining us here on songcraft it was a lot of fun for us to talk to you
2: okay bud and thank you and uh, you guys be well
1: Thank you for listening.
0: To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft
1: universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Show. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.
3: Lean on me when you're not strong